Dear Sharon Gardner, um, and sent her all the various forms. And when she arrived, they were a bit shocked because she was not a man. <laughs> Nor did she dress like a man. And that's important. Because at the point when she uh, got there, they, got, they got, went into a complete panic as to what they were supposed to do about it. And eventually decided that somebody else who was female, who'd also applied, should be allowed to come too. So that two of them would be there together. Because actually, women talk to women and men to men. Is that right? But that's how they kind of saw it. And about halfway through her time, uh, there was a day off, and uh, Sharon uh, didn't always wear dresses. She sometimes wore trousers. And she was wearing women's jeans, and she went into town, and she came back, and the principal called her into the office and said, we're a bit worried about you because you're wearing man's apparel. <laughs> At which Sharon, who was only 18 but a little precocious, uh, said something along the lines of, I don't think there's any man that could wear these jeans. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. At, at which they were so angry with her, they told her that she was going to leave. And uh, again, precociously, she said, God called me here. You can't stop me. I'm staying. And went off to pray. And you're wondering how this relates to Psalm 46. Well, if you read Psalm 46, there is a scripture, which was the passage in her Bible reading of the day. In the middle of it, it says, God is within her. She will not fail. And God spoke to her and said, just be at peace. God is within you. You will not fail. And a little bit later in the day, they brought her back in and said, we're sorry for being like that. And of course you can stay. But please, could you wear dresses from now on? Now, if you know Sharon now, you will discover that she doesn't always wear dresses. And uh, I have to say, on the last day she was at that particular school, they got, they, various people got together and prayed for her and said, in your ministry as the wife of an evangelist, because they didn't believe that she could be an evangelist, uh, and, that, uh, and they prayed for her on those bases. And she sat there with her fingers crossed, saying, Lord. <laughs> and uh, since then, she's been a preacher all over the country, all over the world. Uh, as an evangelist. Uh, I don't know what you feel about that, but God has used that ministry. It is very interesting how the Holy Spirit can use things completely out of context. This isn't the basis for women's ministry, can I say. That basis is easy from the rest of Scripture. But from that particular moment, God spoke. And um, later on in uh, my life, Sharon and I were both working with a chap called Eric Dell, doing evangelistic missions around the country. Uh, Sharon would speak on his night off and I led all the evenings. And one of the songs we really enjoyed using was one based on this uh, psalm, uh, which we will sing at the end of this service. And it's actually, part of the reason why we enjoyed it is we gather vast numbers of people from a town like Guildford or Portsmouth or something like that. And many of them were not Christian believers. So if you ask them to sing, Thine Be the Glory, or some of our modern songs, they didn't understand them or they didn't know the tune, so they felt out of it. And the whole purpose of our event was to make sure that people felt eat. So this particular song, God is Our Strength and Refuge, had been written by a chap called Richard Buse, who was a friend of mine from childhood as well, and he wrote this song to the tune of the Dan Busters theme. And again, we will sing this at the end, uh, there's something about singing, a tune, singing to a tune that you know, that even if you don't know the words, it's all right. 
And over and over again, we sat there with you know, 1,000, 2,000, sometimes 5,000 people, and we would sing various different Christian hymns in order to keep the Christians happy. And then we would get to the Dan Busters song, as we used to call it, and everybody joined in. And the moment they joined in, they were with us. They were no longer them and us. You know what I'm saying? And so that suddenly it became something they could be part of. So I'm just really grateful to this song because I saw so many people, particularly men, come to Christ as a result of this particular hymn. Seeing them coming to the front. Often the first few people to come to the front at those meetings and give their lives to Jesus. In fact, it was such a, an effect on our, our lives that when Sharon and I did get married, uh, how do you pick the hymns for your, uh, <laughs> your wedding service? Well, we had loads of people coming to that wedding service who weren't Christians. So again, we thought, wouldn't it be great to stick this in? And it happened exactly the same way in the wedding service. There, they, there we were immediately after the actual part of the wedding where you do all the vows. We went into this, and my father said, oh, I like this one. And <laughs> I sang it with great gusto. So there's something, there is something emotional about a tune and a set of words. But actually, the words are amazing too. So we're going to spend time today, not pre- I'm not going to be kind of sharing the tune with you so much as later, but let's have a look at the words. Is that all right? Okay. So, don't you love poetry? Do you love poetry? Uh, I've met so many people, uh, probably in the previous generation, said poetry, no rubbish. But in this generation, I think we've become more creative again and begun to rejoice in poetry more. Poetry is a strange thing. Because quite often in poetry, you say something that is not true, but it is true in a different way, in a deeper way. Uh, there was, uh, somebody at one point said that if you can't prove something scientifically, it doesn't exist. Well, actually, most of the things that are most important to you are pretty difficult to prove scientifically. For example, music. If you actually sit down and say, what is music? It's quite difficult to define it scientifically. Good music is even harder to define scientifically, because it's what it does to us. Words like love are very difficult to define scientifically. What does it mean to say, I love you? And when should you say it? Try and put that into a chemical formula and you're in real trouble. The most important things in life are often things which are more poetic. And they are true, but at a deeper and higher level. And this is a classic piece of poetry. It's one of the songbook of the Israelites, as you know. Uh, it was written a long time before Jesus. So in what way does it speak of Jesus? We're going to have a look at that. It's also, um, for some of you, I, I, I don't know if you, how, has, how many of you know about Graham Kendrick? Have you heard of Graham Kendrick? Okay, I'm just trying to, Matt Redman, right? It doesn't matter who these people are, except that they're songwriters. Uh, Charles Wesley, Okay, so we're fine. All right, so in every one of those cases, they are songwriters who are quite well known for writing songs for church worship. Now, there is a possibility that there was a chap around the time of David, a thousand years before Jesus, approximately, who was one of the songwriters of the day called Korah, and he had a bunch of sons, and they formed a worship band called the Sons of Korah. It is possible. But it is also quite, quite possible that Korah was a well-known worship band person who wrote songs, and then he got together a bunch of people, 
And they called themselves the sons of Korah, not because they were the sons of Korah, but because they were the disciples of Korah. And they became one of the many worship teams that sung songs around the time of David and his tabernacle. Uh, this is partly likely to be true because David had a tabernacle, which was like a worship center, a church building, if you like, at the time. And they had to sing songs of worship to God night and day, every day of the year, which means you needed an awful lot of musicians, if you think about it. So you have a band that did this, and a band that did that, and a band that did that. There are a few places in the world that are trying to do that even today. Anyway, the sons of Korah are a bit like Mumford and Sons, if you get it. Uh, except, obviously, uh, and you know, the Mumford and Sons lot are Christian, but maybe their songs are not quite as Christian as we'd need for worship. Uh, but the equivalent of Kendrick and Sons, or Redmond and Sons, or Charles Wesley and Sons. Does that make sense? So that song was, and it also says here that it was... Uh, According to Alamoth. Now, you read, if you read the Bible and you see according to Alamoth, you're instantly thinking, hmm, I wonder what Alamoth is. Well, if you find out what Alamoth is, you'll find it's quite dull, and that it just means it was sung by sopranos on the whole. Um, so, uh, the song we're going to sing today is not so much being going to be sung by sopranos because of the tune we use. But this was a song deliberately put together for the young maidens of Israel to sing. Exactly what the tune was, we have no idea. Uh, but that's all there in the text of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? In other words, a real song, real people, it isn't just a piece of the Bible, which is quite important for us. Is that actually within its bit of history, they used this song because um, they needed to worship. And it was beautiful and wonderful, but actually a bit weird. And we'll come to that in a moment. Now, there's two other things which are a bit tricky. Uh, one is this, that the word God in our first line is Elohim, which is the plural for God. And in other contexts could be used as the plural for God. Now, throughout the Bible, God uses the plural for God to refer reference himself. And that seems to be similar to Queen Victoria saying, we are not amused. Although my daughter, who is a historian, tells me that Queen Victoria never said it. It's just a good meme. That's what she calls it. If you don't understand what a meme is, nor do I. So uh, God, in some way using the plural for the word God, makes out that he is the high God. Now, you might say, well, that could reference the Trinity. It could, but it doesn't have to. It could just be the high God, the God of gods. And Elohim is often there. Now, that's going to be important later on in this psalm. So that's why I mention it from the first word. There's another word here which we use, which is Lord in this um, psalm. And it says the Lord Almighty in the New International Version. And again, New International Version is... Do, is taking a, an idea from the scriptures which is used regularly in English translation, which is that sometimes it's talking about the Lord in the Bible, and it's the word in Hebrew, Adonai, which means the, 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 the boss person, rather like the Lord of the manor. Uh, and sometimes in the scripture, they wrote in Hebrew the word Yahweh, J-H-W-H, sometimes said in English Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, but in essence, it says J-H-W-H, and there weren't any vowels, so you have to make up which vowels you put in there. And that was the name of God. Not God meaning the word God in terms of his title, or Lord in terms of being uh, the boss, 
but a, a name, meaning I am. But it was like a name, like Hugo is a name, or Lin is a name. Therefore, Yahweh was his name. And uh, whenever that turned up in, in the script, in Hebrew scriptures, the Jews did not like saying the name of God because they thought it was too holy. So they, they, they put over the words Adonai, which means Lord. So in the English versions of the Bible, we have taken the name Yahweh, wherever it is, or Adonai in some, some versions because they've already removed the Yahweh, and we have put the word Lord in capitals. So you can actually see it in the Bible, wherever it says Lord in capital letters, the actual Hebrew was originally Yahweh. Okay? Then it says Yahweh Almighty. So we're, we're now in verse 7, and it's quite important because this is the chorus for the whole thing. In verse 7 it says Yahweh Almighty. Almighty is definitely not right. Okay? The, the Hebrew is of armies. The Lord of hosts. If, you, if you've got a proper Bible, some people might call it, but the old version of the Bible from 1662, you will find that it says, uh, the Lord of hosts is with us, which means armies. Uh, and that's quite, again, it's significant because it's not just that he's all powerful. It's got, he's got a bunch of armies. That's a totally different meaning if you think about it. Uh, and it fits specifically into the context of this psalm and it makes more sense if you say he's got an army, a spiritual army, not, not a human army, uh, an army that's in the heavenly realms uh, that, uh, that at various points in the scripture are revealed to the prophets and, and they can be seen. And it's an overwhelming army should it ever need to be used. And if it's poured into, it's an angelic army, if you like. But it's not just that everything that God wants happens. It's that if God releases his armies, anything that God wants will eventually happen. But it can cause chaos to have an army released, can't it? So there is a time to do it and a time not to do it. And that changes the nature of the way we should see God. We should see the Lord. We should see Yahweh and the way Yahweh works in uh, this world. So in verse 7 it says, Yahweh of hosts is with us, the Elohim of Jacob is our high fortress. That means a cliff-edged fortress on the top of a very high peak. Uh, a, a very good place to go and be safe if you're in a military situation. So uh, when you start digging at it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? All right, let's go back to the beginning. Um, Sometimes, I don't know if you know this, but around Israel they do have earthquakes uh, and uh, things do go wrong. And that is a poetic way of talking about much of our lives, isn't it? Sometimes they, things go wrong in our lives. Sometimes they go big wrong in our lives. Uh, my wife and I couldn't have children. Uh, when we got married, we knew we couldn't have children. And uh, we went forward in life, uh, experimenting to find out if the science was true, and it did appear to be true, because that's what you do in, when you're married, isn't it? Uh, and we, um, after five years, we still didn't have children, and we went and had particular tests, because I trust doctors, I like doctors, because they're looking for truth and trying to help. And uh, 
just to check that various things were in their right place. And they said, well, you probably can't have children. Uh, and uh, we went on through life. We started a Christian organization where we traveled the world and supported children and got them into uh, school and various other things. Not compassion, a different one. And uh, we did all that with the understanding. We even wrote a book about not being able to have children and stood up at various platforms and did seminars about it's okay not to be able to have children and all those kind of things. Some of our friends in Africa became very concerned about this. From their perspective, it wasn't a doctor issue. It was a curse issue. If you can't have children, you're cursed. Yes, but it could be a tubes. Uh, that's the kind of conversation we would have. And uh, they would then go on and say, well, still, you're cursed. And then one day, we had just actually organized a whole bunch of children to go into school. We'd driven halfway across uh, Tanzania in a Land Rover with food poisoning. It was quite an exciting time. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Imodium is a glorious thing given by God. And, <laughs> uh, and we got to Dar es Salaam. And there's a church in Dar es Salaam, which we'd ministered in about six months before. And the pastor and his wife of that church had not been able to have children. And uh, Sharon had prayed for them, and now she was pregnant. They'd been not been able to have children for five years, and now this lady was pregnant. And the pastor was very, very thrilled about this, and uh, said, we should now pray for you. And for some reason, we avoided that. It was just a busy moment. And then uh, a couple of days later, we were at the airport, and they came to say goodbye. And in those days, there wasn't all that um, security stuff we have now in Dar es Salaam Airport. So you could actually, people could say goodbye to you right next to the check-in desks. And so there was the pastor and elders of the church. And um, the pastor said, before you go, we'd like to pray for you. And I have to say that I did have quite bad food poisoning at the time. So it was a slight, slight worrying thought to pause for a bit. But we paused for a bit. And I said, of course. And um, you know, my parents spent quite a lot of money on my stiff upper lip. So I just stood there. Uh, and we, we allowed them to pray for us. But at this point, the pastor whistled, and he'd actually told the whole of the church to turn up because we needed to be prayed for. Uh, and a vast number of people then came from around the corner and gathered around us. It was a Pentecostal church. I understand that Milford Baptist is not quite the same. Uh, but um, they gathered around us, and they all started shouting in tongues. I assume it was tongues, although it could have been Swahili. Uh, uh, but they were all shouting very loudly. Uh, and um, one of the ways you become a pastor of a uh, church in Tanzania is that if you can pray louder than your entire congregation all praying together, you can be the pastor. And uh, we heard this uh, pastor say something along the lines of, uh, Father, you have broken the curse over my wife and I, and now we want to break the curse over my brother and sister in the name of Jesus, at which all the women went, oh, and uh, I was thinking, yes, Lord, and where is the toilet? And um, uh, so there was a slight pause. And then there was a rather wonderful bit of praying, which went something along the lines of this. And he said, uh, Father, we do not want you to misunderstand us. At which there was a pause. And he said, what we are praying for our brother and sister is that you would give them a baby. At which everybody shouted, baby, baby. Quite loud, and I was going, Oh God, help us! But I didn't mean the baby, I was meaning something completely different. Uh, so uh, it was quite fun, 
And I have to say that I opened my eyes a few times during this time of prayer and watched the, the check-in queue for British Airways just behind us and watched the businessmen trying desperately not to look. It was very, very funny. And eventually, um, the prayer meeting finished and we got on the plane. We'd been married for 12 years at that point. And uh, we went through the check-in and found the toilet and all that kind of thing. As we walked onto British Airways, one of the members of staff came up to us and said, who are you? Because everybody's going, oh, it's them. Uh, and so we said guess, and they couldn't guess, and then we eventually told them what was happening and what it was all about. And later in the, um, uh, the flight, they actually brought us bottles of champagne and said this could help too. Uh, so, um, it was quite fun. Uh, so, uh, six weeks later, we were at a Spring Harvest leaders meeting, and uh, my wife felt quite queasy, went next door, found a test, and discovered she was pregnant. And we now have three children. And I, I sit there and I go, the relationship I have, therefore, with our friends in Africa is a totally different one if we help them. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a perspective they had which was different from the perspective the British would have had, even British Christians, which I believe made a, a massive difference to our life. And uh, my daughter, who was born as a result of that, will be 20 next week. And God does stuff. He turns up and does stuff. Now, that's what this passage basically says. God does turn up and do stuff. In the midst of all the places where things are terrible and shaking and difficult, God does turn up and do things. The Lord, the God of armies, doesn't always do stuff, but he does do stuff. And he does wonderful stuff. And sometimes he does other stuff, which is to take people who have got stuck up in their pride and bring them down a peg or two. And both of those things happen. God turns up and does stuff. He does it in different ways. There's the, the, the Bible talks about him taking the uh, empire of Egypt and taking it apart one step at a time. The book of Exodus is the story of the Lord, Yahweh, or the God of hosts, taking Egypt apart calmly. Notice that he is slow to anger. He doesn't just do it overnight. You know, Take that person. I don't like them, God. Destroy them. No, he doesn't do that. But he will sensibly and straightforwardly take people out of their pride to the point where the Red Sea happened. The Red Sea was that moment where the people of Israel in vulnerability were stuck on one side of the Red Sea. Moses is eventually told by God to hold his staff out over the Red Sea all night and as a result a road forms in the Red Sea. They walk as the people of Israel, probably two million people, through uh, the Red Sea and stand on the other side. Then they see the armies of Egypt beginning to follow them through the Red Sea. And God says to Moses, stick out your staff again and hold it out. And as he does, the Red Sea closes over the army and a massive destruction happens. And there's a wonderful radio program many years ago I was listening to. And it was a rabbi on Radio 4 doing his thought for the day. And he said, uh, immediately after that moment, when the armies of Egypt were wiped away, the people of Israel had a worship time and sung about how God had wiped out what would have wiped them out. And then they paused in the middle of their worship and noticed Yahweh was not so happy. He was weeping. 
And they said, but it's been a great victory, Lord. And he said, yes, it has, and it needed to happen. But they were my children too. See, God loves people, and because he loves people, he does act, both decisively to liberate and set, set us free, and also decisively to heal us and to do all sorts of other things. But he only does it with great caution, and he doesn't want to undermine the entire structures of the world, because they would all fall apart. So he acts at times, amazingly and powerfully. But at other times, and you'll notice this one, he also acts like he did with Jacob. Do you remember Jacob in the Bible? Jacob was an interesting chap because he was a bit of a weasel, a bit of a nasty little character who was trying to manipulate his brother and his father and his mother. And that's how he's described in the Bible. He's described as the chap who always stayed at home and was trying to kind of get the right words in the right place so that he ended up with the inheritance. And his brother, who was a simple chap, who didn't think greatly. I'm not going to put any politician's names in any of these things. Uh, but his brother liked to go off out into the countryside and slay things and bring them back and turn them into porridge and soup. And he liked his mates and would laugh and sing. Whereas Jacob was at home trying to work out how to stay in charge, even though he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And Jacob, the story goes that when his father was on his deathbed, pretending to be his brother Esau, put on the kind of he-man kit in order to pretend to be, even uh, put animal skin on so he'd be a bit more hairy, and offered his father a soup like his brother would have produced with the help of his mother in order to get his father's blessing. And his father blesses him with what he thinks is Esau's blessing. And when Esau gets back, he is enraged in a simple kind of one day of rage kind of form, but enough to have gone and found his brother and stuck a sword in him because that's the way he would do things. So Jacob does what is very sensible at that point, which is run away. Now, what's the point of this story? The point is that while he was running away, uh, God was with him. And the first night, he's hiding in the middle of the wilderness in a non-place, a place that is not a place. And he lays his head down on a stone and he goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, he has a vision of being of heaven opening above him and a stairway and angels going up and down to minister to him, the son of man, with his head on a stone. When he wakes up, he goes, wow, I'm in a special place. A special place. And this stone is a special stone. That's absolutely untrue. He was in a non-place with a non-special stone. He was with a special God, because God can make any place special. But the human problem is that the moment you have a special moment with God, you turn it into a special place. It wasn't a special place. It was just, a it was just a, any place. But God was with him. The church has been struggling with this ever since. God is not interested in the place you're in. He's interested in you. He loves you. He can love you at home or in church building or in a lovely place on the other side of the world, in a field, anywhere is the house of God. Because God loves you. 
It was because God was with Jacob. It was the house of God. It was not because of the stone. Not because of a building. And he laid his head down. God turned up. And in the middle of that place, it was like he was in a high fortress. God had put a defense around him. The story of Jacob is that later on, he goes on through life and ends up a wealthy man. For various weird ways, and he actually uses witchcraft to get there at one point. So he's not a great guy in the way he behaves all the way through. You don't have to be a great guy or woman for God to love you. It's one of the wonderful stories of the Bible is that God loved Jacob. And he was a twisty little person. And the word Jacob actually means twisty little person. It means snake. It's a very odd name to give to your child. So uh, there we go. God changes his name, which is quite kind, I think, in the context of a struggle he has with him. And he becomes struggling with God. And he's now going back, having annoyed everybody he ever knew. He annoyed his parents-in-law. Not hard to do, I know. But, you know, he annoys everybody. And he is now stuck with his parents-in-law behind him, who hate him because he's stolen their children and most of their wealth. And in front of him is his brother, who he thinks hates him because he stole his inheritance. And he's basically going, what am I to do? And in that context, he meets with God. Jacob does. And God changes his name to Israel. And he steps forward with a limp towards meeting Esau. He then sends most of his wealth ahead and says, this is gift to Esau, because he doesn't want Esau, who is much tougher than him. He is the Ben Stokes of his day. And he's going, this chap could eat me for lunch. But when Esau meets him, he says, brother, it was ages ago. I'm wealthy, you're wealthy. What's the big deal? And Jacob basically thinks that if it was me, I'd still be angry. Why aren't you? Which, again, is another indictment on the person who Jacob was. But God loved him. God loves us. With all of our strange motivations and muddle. The God of Jacob. Don't you love the fact that Yahweh, of hosts, the one who runs all the armies in the spiritual realm, loves you and you're just as bad as Jacob? Isn't that fantastic? That's the message of the scripture. God. The one who made everything, the God of gods, the one who has a name, who is, who was and who will be. God, who revealed himself in Jesus well after this, loves you like he loved Jacob. With all your twisted motivations and your gossip and your manipulation and all the other stuff. You say, you know, you don't know me. Well, I don't need to, do I? Because we're all like that. But God is for us and he wants us to come through it all, come out the other side with family and life and blessing to the rest of the human race. And we can sit there with our arms folded and say, no, I don't want that. And then we don't benefit from it. Or we can say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Then there's this other bit. I haven't got time to go through it all, but we sang the song about the, the river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Problem, poetry problem. There is no river. There isn't a river. Did you know that? Jerusalem has no river. Okay? So it can't be Jerusalem. But it is. And other bits of the Bible say that there is a river coming out from under the temple and it all goes through. And then you get to the, 
to Revelation and there's a river and it's in the middle of the city of God. So where's the city of God? Now some people say, oh, well, it must be in Mesopotamia. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's the spiritual city of God. Poetry is about getting us out of thinking in three-dimensional or four-dimensional terms, time being a fourth dimension. We've got to start thinking about what God is actually talking about, which is beyond all of this. A friend of mine used to say, if you, when you get to heaven, if you do, the first thing you'll think is, oh, so this is what real means. This stuff is only matter in a state of change, isn't it? Energy in a state of change, that's what matter is. It's a bunch of quantum numbers that hold it all in the Goldilocks bit of not flying apart or holding together. And that's just at an atomic level, let alone the universe. It wouldn't take very much to change the quantum numbers just like this, and it just wouldn't exist because it's the matrix at one level. Some of you are going, what's the matrix? Don't worry, don't worry. It's, in, in some ways, we're living in a system that God has created for us to live in. We have limited autonomy within it. Most of it's a moral autonomy. An issue of whether we have faith and trust in God or not. Whether we try and manipulate others or we don't. But we can't jump round the moon and back very easily. We have limited autonomy. And that judges us. And God is hoping that we would, within the context of all our failures and sins, trust him. And therefore he could say, wouldn't it be great to come into the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation, where you'll see that this is real. And in that place, there is a city of God. And it already exists. And in the midst of it is God. And he is the light of that place. And there is a river flowing through the middle of it. And it's not Jerusalem, although it might in some way match over Jerusalem in, in other dimensions. I don't know. What it is, is this. They called it Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was in some way a shadow of it to come. And in that river is the life of God. And in Ezekiel, he saw this in a vision. Again, a poet, poetry, but also a vision. And he saw this river come out from under the temple of God, from under the altar. Why under the altar? Because it came from the very sacrifice issue. And I'm going to refer to Jesus and how it relates to the cross in a moment. And then we're going to pray. But uh, this river came out from underneath the altar. And in Ezekiel 47, it says that an angel took Ezekiel a few cubits down and then said, let's cross over. And when they crossed over, it was very shallow. And then they took a few more cubits and then it was deeper and it got deeper and deeper to the point, it says, they walked a few bits down and then they crossed over. And then they walked a few over and they came through at this height and they crossed over. And then he said, we walked a few more cubits down and you couldn't cross over. So you walk, they walked into the river a bit and it looked it wasn't possible to cross from one bank to the other bank. So they walked back to the bank. That's an interesting thing because I've heard lots of people preach, you, you, you know, you should get into God, you should get into ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, and then you should swim. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says that at each of those levels, you walk through and you could stay with self-control. But there came a point where you couldn't remain with self-control so you, he was taken back to the bank where you could have self-control. Because self-control is part of what God wants us to have. 
He doesn't want us to be out of control. And he walks down the bank, and on the bank there are trees, and the fruit is there every month. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And then he's taken right to the end, and the angel basically says that the river then meets the Dead Sea, and what was salty becomes fresh, and then there are multiple, multiple life that meets that. And all of this is a vision of something beyond this world. It is not something that was true of Jerusalem. Isn't it wonderful that these people could have conceptual thought, just like we do, that could go, I live in a city where I know there is no river, and still rejoice with this, knowing that it was about concept. It was about something beyond what physically was there. Do you see what I'm saying? And uh, then, of course, then, what does that refer to today? Uh, years ago, I watched Ben-Hur. Have you ever, ever you seen the old Ben-Hur? The new one, forget it. Um, the old Ben-Hur. Now, at the end of Ben-Hur, he has, uh, there's a lady who is his mother-in-law who has got leprosy. And she is brought near the cross and is kind of down the hill from Golgotha. And he goes up and sees Jesus dying on the cross. And the filmmaker does this. He lets the blood that is coming from the brow of Jesus and from the side of Jesus and from the hands and feet of Jesus drop onto the ground. And then he invents rain. I'm not sure rain happened, but he invents it in the story. And this rain pours onto the ground and picks up the blood that has just dropped from the, from the body of Jesus as he is dying on the cross. And the blood begins to flow away from Golgotha and down the hill. And at a certain point further down the hill is this lady sitting with her leprosy. And there's a whole story of how she's become a leper. But when the blood touches her body, she is healed. And the river then goes on flowing in the film. Again, a piece of poetry, a bit of film maker's license to try and tell you something that is going to happen from that day on. There will be a river that will flow from the altar and flow through history. When I walked into this church, I saw the picture at the back there. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That is so similar to what I've got in this bag. Now, years ago, back in 2013, my son was told he would have to have his bowel out. And the doctors wrote to us and said uh, his bowel was going to need to be removed because it might become cancerous because he'd had ulcerative colonitis for a long time. And... Um, I'm going to go on talking while I lay this out for you. Um, so my son was then sent an appointment to see the consultant surgeon who was going to take his bowel out. And it was when my wife was in Africa the appointment came through. And I took this um, appointment and I went, oh, the last thing you want as a father is to have to take your son to an appointment with a con consultant surgeon to say your bowel is coming out and mother's not even there. But you turn around to the hospital and say, it's not a great day. And they say, well, when is a great day? And it goes six months down the road. And 
all a bit confusing. So I went to pray and I opened the Bible and out of context it said this. First line was, uh, you've heard about this king and this king and this king? Well, and they said that they'll destroy you? Well, it will not happen. And I read that and I knew that God told me it will not happen. So I said to my wife, it will not happen. And my wife said, very practically, because you, never, you have to be careful with God, what will not happen? The appointment will not happen, or the surgery will not happen? And I said, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure, out of context, this scripture means for me, not for everybody else, it will not happen. And um, over the next few months, it came to five or six days before the appointment, then two days before the appointment. Then we got a call from the hospital and they said, I'm terribly sorry, but your appointment can't happen. Because the doctor who would have been meeting you is very, very sick and will be in touch. So I was thinking, oh, it's the appointment that won't happen. And then, um, are you still with me? Yes. So, You'll notice this is a red rope. If you're interested, take a look at the picture behind you. Multi-sensory preaching. Um, I'm going to leave some of this across a, a few chairs, just in case people need chairs. Because some of you are going to come and use this as a way to pray for those you love. Um, anyway, my, my wife came back and then they put another appointment in. So we went to see this surgeon. We had this appointment in the December of that year to see the surgeon and we explained how they were going to definitely take Jack's bowel out. And uh, so my wife said to me, so it was definitely the appointment and not the operation. And I said, well, I don't know. And that Christmas, I was asked at, in the early January to have a meeting with um, a church in South London. So. The pastor and his wife there said, we need to pray that it wouldn't happen, that it wouldn't need to happen, that Jack would be healed. And I said, well, that's true, but we need two miracles. One, we'd need his bowel to be healed. And two, we'd need the NHS to stop. Because the NHS has decided that they have to take the bowel out, even if he's healed. Because it's a statistical problem that the bowel might be a problem, because it was so bad six months ago, and so they're taking his bowel out now because over the last two or three years, because we basically said to the doctors, what happens if you go in and find the bowel is fine? Do you still take it out? They said yes, because we just, we've made the decision that's already going to happen. And we said, so if he gets healed, that doesn't stop it? And they said no. And I said, well, what about if we pray and he gets healed? And they said, you had the chance to do that over the last three years. So I said to this couple, you're going to have to pray that God finds a way to stop that. Because he's a child, he doesn't belong to us, he belongs to the state. Did you know that? Um, so anyway, the date was set, I think it was like the 18th or the 19th of January it was set for. So on the 16th of January, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I had a heart attack. I had no plan to have a heart attack. I didn't scheme it up as a really clever way to achieve what then happened which is that my wife rang the next day. I was sitting in Frimley Park Hospital. I was still alive. And uh, my wife rang the, the hospital and said, I'm really sorry, I can't bring Jack to the appointment. I just don't know how to do it in the context of my husband just having had a heart attack. And they said, 
no problem, they were terribly wonderful, and all the other kind of things. And so we will do this operation uh, in two and a half weeks' time. And it was all put in for when I would be back home. And then two days later, they rang and said, actually, in two and a half weeks' time, we will do an investigation to find out his bio, how his bile is. And they went in and did an investigation two and a half weeks later, with me at home by then, and uh, all down at Southampton Hospital. And the person who did that investigation was different from the one who'd done the one before, because that good protocol. And they had the videos of both these investigations. And they eventually came in with an iPad and showed to my son and my wife the two videos and said, this cannot be the same bowel. We definitely don't need to take your bowel out. What did you do? Because we need to put it into the system as things you do. And Sharon said, we pray. Well, you must have prayed a lot. Uh, and the very nice Sri Lankan doctor said, ah, him upstairs is definitely doing something here. We're not quite sure what, but it definitely doesn't make sense any other way. This then led to a very strange thing, which was that my wife and I drove back from Southampton Hospital. My son came into the church, into the house, not the church, don't live in the church, um, came into the house, saw me looking frail and heart attack ridden, not really, but a little, um, with my stents and all the rest, and said, Dad, thank you for having a heart attack. <laughs> God works in very odd ways. But I know God did that. I know because when I opened the Bible out of context, it said, this will not happen. And I know, looking back, that that was the only way it could be. And his bowel is stable now. Um, five years later. God works when we pray. He does do things. He turns up and helps Jacobs as he puts his head on a rock in very quiet ways, in dreams, and motivates him to keep going and eventually sort things out so that he can keep his purpose going on in history. He works in Red Sea moments and wipes out whole armies. God works. He doesn't work all the time. Some people say, why does it why is it he doesn't work sometimes? And I say, well, if you want to spend your life explaining to everybody why he doesn't work sometimes, you can. Or you can answer this question. How can he work sometimes? Extraordinarily and in beautiful ways. I said I wouldn't have any children if he hadn't worked. I don't know what Jack's life would be like if he hadn't worked. I do know that God comes and does things. He does things subtly sometimes, and extraordinarily sometimes. But he also very often does it when we pray. And there is a river flowing from under the altar, which actually is where Jesus died on the cross. It's not a physical building somewhere with a stone. It's about Jesus. It comes from the cross. It's the life of God. And when we claim that, even if we're a Jacob, God goes, I forgive you. Because it's the blood of Christ that is the river. And this red rope, which I could tell you where it also turns up in the Bible, Rahab and various other places, tells me this, that no matter if you're a Jacob, God loves you. And here's an even more exciting thing. Even if your friend is a Jacob, he likes them and loves them. 
Even if your loved one is a Jacob and has run away from God and is being a pain and is so far from God, you think, what hope is there for them? God loves them. And they, they may come to the end of themselves at one point, but he needs us to pray for them. And this is a symbol. I've taken it all over the world, India, Africa, Romania, Spain. I even took it to Wittenberg, to the very strange place which is Wittenberg. Those, some of you will be going, oh, the Reformation, yes! Yes, the Reformation, yes! And then you go to Luther's church and it's got awful anti-Semitic stuff all over it. It's, everything's a muddle in the world, you know? God loves Jacob. He doesn't just love beautiful people. He loves people like us, whose motivations aren't all perfect and can be claimed by Hitler later on, in generations later, to be true Germanic approach to life. How terrible. And I wandered around there, and people came and met me and said, why are you holding this thing? And I said, it's the blood of Jesus. If you want to, you can add your name and attach it. If you do, you'll add your name to a symbol of the blood of Christ. And as a result of that, you'll be adding your name next to people who you disagree with intensely. but who also want to pray for their loved one and say, I want Jesus to help them. We have here, sorry, I'm just going on a little bit too long at this point, I know, but I needed to explain what I was about. Here we are. Here's some tags. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask the musicians to play. We can do this during the service or after it. But this is an expression of God's love. And if you'd like to, you could add your name to it. We heard earlier in the service of, um, it was just in the prayers, I don't know what the story is, you'll know what the story is, of some son or grandson of somebody who had eventually made, has eventually come and met with their parent or their grandparents and connected again. That's what this is about. This is about saying, I don't give up on you. No matter how far you've gone. I want to write my own name and say, I belong to Jesus. And on the back of the label, I want to write your name and say, God, call them back to you. Call them back to me. Call them back. Call them back to health. Call them back from their wandering. Bring them back into the very presence of God. So as the musicians start to play, I'm going to pray. And if you'd like to, you could come and add a tank. You don't have to do it now. You might be the kind of person who's a bit embarrassed to do it in the service, and then you can do it afterwards. But I have endless stories of people who said, I'm just going to do this as a symbol that I'm praying for this person, and as a symbol that I'm prepared to join with the rest of the body of Christ in this. This rope is not the only one. That's the rope. The rope is the invisible one. It's the one that goes all the way from Jesus, throughout the world, everywhere. This is just a symbol of that. It's only a rope. But we, the essence of the way Christian worship works is you take a symbol and you add faith because what you are actually doing is doing the thing that is beyond that in the invisible. And that's what you're doing by writing your name there. Are you happy with this? Okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is a river, a river of the blood of Jesus that runs from the temple 
in the invisible, into every part of this human experience, into this building today. And it makes us glad to hold it and grip it and be forgiven. But it also makes us glad because we can say, Lord, help them and your streams and rivulets of life and love will go to them wherever they are in the world and begin to try and change things. You'll send your armies to help them. You'll send your angels to help them. So we ask you, Lord, to lead us in prayer now, to show us what to write and what to think, that we would release you and your armies to change the world for better, to save those that we love, to bring healing, Amen. If you'd like to come, come.